What wonderful songs to sing this morning about God setting us free from our sin, singing of the power of our Redeemer, singing about the work that He's done on the cross, singing about God's healing. While there's certainly many things to celebrate about God's manifold glories, Him saving us from our sin is never something that we should underestimate. So this morning we are concluding a series on Northside Baptist Church's favorite Bible stories. And uh, you guys kind of saved the hardest one for last because I, I don't know who you are, but there were a bunch of you that just when we asked you what your favorite Bible story was, you just said, Paul. Paul? Paul on a cruise? Paul at the Areopagus? Paul's conversion? Paul? There, there are not... Many people, with the exception of our Lord, who are through every page of the scripture here. He's an extraordinary character. Of all of the apostles, Paul has the most extensive impact. He is known uh, for being a very keen, theologically uh, oriented mind. Uh, He is known for his passion in his missionary journeys. And he's also known under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for composing half of the New Testament. How do you summarize this man's impact? He was a man set on fire for God. And he gets more press in the Scriptures than any of the other apostles, even Peter and John. And so we could look at Paul as a missionary and be very encouraged to be more missions-minded. We could learn to look with God's eyes upon the nations. We could look doctrinally at what he has to say at justification by faith, not by good works. And we all need to be reminded, as we have sung this morning, of God's grace to us in Christ. That would be a worthwhile exploration for us. What I I hope to do in these next few moments is actually very simple. It's to make you aware of a super secret strategy that Paul, the master theologian and veteran missionary, used to witness the power of the gospel. And while he was a veteran missionary and an eloquent theologian, this tool that he used is available for you as well. Now the objections will come very quickly. I'm not Paul. I don't, I don't speak in front of people. I've never been out of the country on a mission trip. I've never planted a church. I can't use Paul's toolbox. He's preached. He's defended the faith. He was a theologian. He was a church planter. Here's the point. You don't have to be any of these things to use the tool that Paul himself Utilized, And so this morning, we will be in the book of Acts, chapter 26, and we will see the power, very simply, of a gospel testimony. Paul, at this point in his life, has just finished his third missionary journey. And he has collected an offering for the saints in Jerusalem that are experiencing a tremendous famine. And so Paul has collected this money from the churches scattered throughout Asia and is returning to Jerusalem to give this money to the church. 
And instead of a hero's welcome for his labors, he faces his most difficult trial. While the church is glad to hear his report, the Jews see this as their opportunity to catch this troublemaker. So look with me just a few chapters back at chapter 21, verses 27 and 28. The Word of God says this, When the seven days were almost over, Jews from Asia, upon seeing Paul in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd, and they laid hands on him, crying out, Man of Israel, come to our aid! This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and against the law and against this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him and they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Paul is piously following some of his Jewish heritage. And as he goes, they catch him. And this incident in Acts 21 leads to Paul's imprisonment for two years. Locked up. Over this time, the scriptures tell us that Paul shared his testimony between Acts 21 and Acts 26 no less than four times. Four times in five chapters. Now, I don't know if you are uh, like me or perhaps like my kids, But the same story four times in five chapters? Why in the world would the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to record, for this to be recorded, this same story about Paul over and over and over again? The answer is that obviously there is something here that we need to hear. It's not vain repetition. And so this morning, uh, in your uh, bulletin sermon outline, You'll see several components in Paul's testimony that lead to an effective gospel witness. And we'll begin in Acts 26, verses 1 through 3. Agrippa, the Jewish king, said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself in your defense. And then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews... I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Paul's about to explain his life, explain why he was one thing and now is another. And he says, you know, I could probably do this really quickly, but I need to cover some detail. And so it's not lost on me that Paul says, listen to me patiently. This might take a few minutes of time. Something you got to love about Paul. Proves he was a good Southern Baptist. And the first point that we see here is that in testifying to Christ, we must be respectful to our hearers. You see that right there? Paul, Paul is no man-pleaser. Paul is a man who wants to glorify God, but he also knows that he wants his message to be heard. And so he says some really kind things to Agrippa. He says, Agrippa, I know that you're a Jew. I know these accusations that have come to me from the Jews. You will understand this 
in-house debate that is going on. Paul had been uh, captured, and the Roman governor, both Felix and his successor, Festus, didn't understand the intricacies of Jewish theology. They thought, why are these Jews wanting to kill this man who was a Pharisee over this whole issue of Old Testament debate about resurrection, about the Messiah? And so Paul knows who he is testifying to. And it's interesting to think about who this man is that he is testifying to. It is Agrippa. Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great. You've heard his name before. He was the Jewish king when Jesus was born. He was a maniac who was so concerned about losing power that when he heard the prophecy of this one who had been born, when the Magi came, remember what he did? He killed everyone that might be a potential threat to his throne. Not a good guy to claim as your grandpa. Agrippa was the son of Herod Agrippa I, who was the one who had Peter arrested and made sure that James, the brother of Jesus, was killed. So Agrippa, chapter 26, does not have a really good family heritage when it comes to tolerating this Christian faith. But he is a Jew, and he is more familiar with the intricacies of the Jewish faith than the Roman Festus. And the truth is, when we talk about what God has done for us, we have to consider our audience. Think about some of the things that we sing about. Our sins being nailed to the cross and washing in the blood of the Lamb. You think that's going to raise a few uh, eyebrows in Walmart? That sounds disgusting. That sounds cannibalistic. That sounds weird. And the truth is we have to translate things that inside the walls of the church make good sense to us. We have to explain them to people who are listening to us. We have to talk to them in a way that they understand. And here's one of the things that I, I think just so encouraging. Paul says it's his, his ambition to be all things to all people. That doesn't mean that, that Paul, Paul, Paul was a tent maker. He didn't, didn't suddenly become a shipbuilder. He didn't quickly become an NFL athlete to become all. He just was trying to find ways to identify. And the thing that's interesting is you watch Paul repeating his testimony these four times in this section of the book of Acts. Almost every time he shares it, there's a variation in how he explains it. So in Acts 22, when he's being escorted off by the soldiers, he says, hey, can I address the crowd? And he preaches to them in Hebrew. And being that it's a Jewish crowd, there are more Jewish elements to his testimony than when he is explaining what he believes to the Roman governor. He understands. To the Jews, I need to speak one way. There's certain lingo that will work. But when I speak to the Romans, we don't have as much familiar territory, and so I need to be more uh, specific in how I speak about things. Earlier on in 22, uh, Paul gives a lot of attention to his blindness on the road to Damascus. We'll talk about that here a little bit. And he goes into a lot of detail. You remember what happened after Paul was blind? He was told very specifically what he needed to do. Go to this city, go to this house, go to this man. He doesn't do any of that here in Acts 26. Now, is Paul not telling the truth? 
No, he's absolutely telling the truth. There's just some variations on the kind of detail that he includes because he's being sensitive and respectful to his listeners. But he goes on. In verses 1 through 3, he makes this introduction. And in verses 4 through 12, we see something that Paul does. He he tells us today that an effective gospel testimony clearly explains your prior priorities. An effective gospel testimony clearly explains your prior priorities. Paul is glad to be honest about what brought him peace, what brought him security, what brought him happiness, what his former values were, what his attitudes were. And he puts it on display and says, this is who I was. So here's a very practical thing for us. If you want to be effective in telling people what Jesus has done for you, you have to be honest about the fact that you're a sinner. You needed to be saved. So often in church life, you know, we, we dress up and we want to look nice on Sunday morning like we, like we don't need a Savior. We got it all together. You know what? The truth is we have to kind of admit we're all messed up. Now, because of what Christ has done for us, we are saints. We are born again to a living hope. But you know what? We still wrestle with this old man and new man fighting for control of our life. We have to be honest about that. Because we have to say, God saved me from something. And Paul tells us in verses 4 through 12. Paul says this, So then, all Jews, it's a bold statement, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to be honest... I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our twelve tribes all hope to attain as they earnestly serve God day and night. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, but having received authority from the chief priests, also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul lays out his past. He says he was so furiously enraged at Christians that he got a passport. Have you ever been so mad at someone that you're willing to go on an international trip to get them? Can you imagine that? How many of you have been cut off while you're driving this week? Rode my bike yesterday. Got close to Krispy Kreme on Selenice, and that's a dangerous place to ride your bike. People want their donuts. 
And I had someone that did not stop at that little white line and uh, about creamed me, pun intended. (coughs) I was not all that happy. But you know what? I didn't chase them down and get their license plate number, follow them to their house, bless them. I didn't do that. Got on with my life. Better things to do. How mad would you have to be at someone to buy an international plane ticket to go through all of the political stuff that you have to go through to to go try to get them to deny what they believe? Paul was a bad... Saul was a bad dude. He was very serious about doing bad things to believers in Christ. By this time, Paul is probably close to 60 years of age. He spent almost 10 years on his three missionary journeys. He's a, he's a mature believer. And he says that even though he's 60, people knew about him when he was a teenager. He was, you know, um, kind of Jerusalem's got talent, I guess, back in the day. You know, he was the up-and-coming star. He was a smart kid. He was trained by the very brightest rabbis that they had. And even Simon Cowell kind of gave him the thumbs up. He said, this guy's good. He's got a future. He's really going to do something for our Jewish nation. He says, they knew who I was. I was in the strictest group of people that I could be, and I was a Pharisee. And then he inserts something here that's very interesting. You see it. He's, he's kind of explaining his past, and he says in verses 5 through 8 that he's on trial because of the hope of the resurrection. Now, here's the thing that's wild. Do you know that Jews believe in the resurrection? They do. Not not all the Jews. As a matter of fact, there were two main uh, groupings of the Jews. There were the Pharisees and there were the Sadducees. And the Pharisees adamantly believed that resurrection was true. The Sadducees didn't. And that is why they are sad, you see. Sorry. (laughs) Forgive me. Um... Had to try that. As a matter of fact, when Paul's being arrested, when the Jews are kind of accusing him, Paul throws out, I'm on trial for the resurrection. And the Pharisees and Sadducees start fighting with each other, and the Roman soldiers say, we're getting Paul out of here. And so he's, he's already tipping his hat as he's telling his past that why do you believe that it's incredible that God would raise the dead? Paul says, I'm not doing anything except what the Pharisees already believe and what Moses and the prophets have foretold. And he is stymied. Why am I under accusation for the Jewish hope? And the issue is not that he believed in resurrection, like the Jews did. It's the fact that he believed that Jesus was resurrected. That Jesus was the Messiah. And because of that, it didn't matter that the Jews believed in resurrection and Paul believed in resurrection. Paul was now an outsider. And Paul says, listen, I believe that now, but let me tell you something as I tell you my past story. I did not always believe what I believe now. As a matter of fact, I agreed with all of you guys previously. And what did his life consist of? A persecuting zeal. Now, when we talk about zeal, zeal, we just need to um, rewind about 15 hours to the kickoff for the game last night. If you don't know what zeal is, it is painting your face and screaming at a TV 
and um, praying diligently for your team's favor. That's zeal. And Paul said his zeal for his team was so fervent that he would do anything to oppose the name of Christ. He says that he's imprisoned many believers, that he tried to make them blaspheme, that he condoned their deaths, and that he even took his persecuting zeal on the road. What Paul's doing here is he's saying, I didn't embrace Christianity blindly, but there was a change of conviction that led to a change of attitude. And we see that in verses 13 through 18. And the point is this, for your testimony to be meaningful, you have to speak about your defining moment. For your testimony to be meaningful, you have to speak about your defining moment. And Paul then goes on in these verses to speak about his conversion. Now the thing that's interesting is uh, his critics early on and his critics today, people who do not believe the Bible, want to find whatever they can to explain away Paul's conversion. So you know what they say? Sure, Paul saw a bright light on his way to Damascus. He had epilepsy, and he had a seizure. Natural way to explain away anything supernatural. He didn't see God. He had an epileptic seizure. So yeah, we don't deny Paul's experience. We're just going to reinterpret the details. Or, you know, uh, it was a bright, shiny day. Paul just had a little episode of sunstroke. That's what it was. As a matter of fact, I think, I think that's probably true. He did have an episode of sunstroke, just not S-U-N stroke. He, he met someone, and that singular meeting defined the rest of his life. And the point to be made here is that Paul's not saying, I'm a great guy, be impressed with me. He's saying, I met Jesus, and I have never been the same. Jesus gets all of the press here in verses 13 through 18. As a matter of fact, Jesus even monologues through this. Listen to it in 13 through 18. So while I was engaged, I was journeying to Damascus, verse 12, with authority and commission from the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But you, get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen but also to the things in which I will appear to you. To rescue you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So what changed Paul from being a persecutor to being a preacher? It wasn't listening to really cool Christian music. It wasn't having a Christian elected president of the synagogue. It wasn't hearing a Christian athlete share about how God has blessed his life. It was Jesus. Plain and simple. Jesus was the one who changed him. And for Paul, 
a vision of the Lord led to a revision of his life. And for anyone who names the name of Christ, that is true for you this morning too. That you can say, I was headed in one direction and I wasn't even looking for Jesus. And he found me. And he opened up my heart to listen to his voice. And I recognized my sin in need of a Savior. And I trusted him by faith that he is God, that he died an atoning death for my sins. And I've put my faith, in, my, my, my faith and my future in him. And I've trusted him as my king. And Jesus has changed your life. After this meeting, Paul could never be the same. And we're reminded of the truth in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if any man, if any person is in Christ, old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. In verses 19 through 23, he continues with his testimony. And we see this, that the power of a testimony comes from the demonstration of a changed life. Listen to these verses. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying to both small and great stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul tells us something really important here. If there is no change, there is no gospel. If, if God has not changed your life, where's the saving power of the gospel? You see, people can be moved emotionally to make commitments that don't amount to much. A flash in the pan, here today and gone tomorrow. And that's why Paul makes his testimony not about him, but about Christ. And so we must strive in talking about our changed life to make sure that a gospel testimony includes the gospel. It's not that, you know, you had an epiphany and just decided to wake up and have your best life now. You decided to be a better person. No, it's that God has changed you. And Paul, even in describing his conversion, puts his emphasis on his commission. Did you get that? Paul, even in describing what happened, says that Jesus says, I've appointed you to be a witness. Even in his conversion, Paul's emphasis is on his commission. And the truth is that every man, woman, boy, and girl who calls upon the name of Christ is commissioned to witness for him. Paul gives us a great example of just learning to tell your story naturally. You don't have to memorize 632 scriptures to be an effective witness. 
You just need to be able to tell your story of what God has done for you. So Paul says that now, in the present day, he has obeyed and become a proclaimer. He's not proven disobedient to that commission, but has preached repentance and life change. And when we talk about the changes in Paul's life, we see three things. Did you see what he said has changed? Paul modeled and proclaimed a message of obedience. See, guys, listen. You need to turn, and you need to repent, and you need to perform deeds appropriate to prove your repentance. Are you sorry for your sin? Don't do it again. Do something else. Prove your repentance. Be obedient to what God is changing and doing in your life. If you're disobeying, you're not a disciple. If you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. Paul gives no other categories. Number two, Paul talked about the scope of his testifying being as extensive as God had com- Jesus had commanded him. Do you see what he said? He said it's socially extensive. Who did he testify to? Small and great. He testified to kings and to commoners. He testified to peasants and philosophers. So it was socially extensive, but it was also racially extensive. He testified to Jews and to Gentiles, to Romans and to Greeks. And we see that Paul's testimony included the gospel. It was encapsulated in a nutshell. And it says here very clearly in verse 23, three things that Paul said about the gospel. That Christ was to suffer and die. That he would be resurrected from the dead. And that the message about Jesus would be a light to all people. What happens when you turn the light on? You can see. And you may not know that you are headed down a path that will end in destruction. But when God allows the light to be turned on, you can see the cliff that's right in front of you. And you can do what? You can turn You can repent, and you can follow God instead of following your own desires. Fifth and lastly, we see that the words of our testimony must be joined with sincere desire. Verses 24 through 29. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am uttering words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For these things have not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, Will you persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also who hear, all who hear me this day might become as I am except for these chains. The king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. 
Agrippa realized kind of Paul's end plan. Paul put him on the spot, didn't he? He said, Agrippa, you up there in the balcony, you know these things, don't you? And you believe the Old Testament scriptures. Well, Agrippa's put in a very difficult position because he is invited to the governor's court. And the governor thinks all this stuff is foolishness. And Agrippa, in his heart, believes the Old Testament scriptures. But if he admits that, this man whose court he is attending to, to win his favor, is going to think he's a foolish man too. So Agrippa says, what are you trying to do, Paul? Convince me to be a Christian? And it's exactly what Paul was trying to do. Whether it was a private conversation or a private conversation had in public. Paul said, my desire is for people to know the message about Christ and to put their trust in him. When we talk about evangelistic practice, it's not hard to share your story. If you're a Christian, you should have a story, right? You should have a story of what God has done for you. And it it should be a personal story. So it shouldn't be something hard for you to do. It's not like you're fabricating a novel that you have to memorize. It's your story. It should roll off your lips. Perhaps you don't practice it, and that's what makes it so weird, you know, when you actually start sharing it. My concern in our day and age is that we've been so painted into a corner that we've lost our desire for people to know Christ. God, in this story, Paul, the veteran missionary, the accomplished theologian, at the end of the book of Acts, pulls out a super secret weapon, and it's something that is available for every Christian. Wouldn't you have expected Paul to have done something else? Done a little song and dance show, pulled a rabbit out of a hat, done something miraculous as an apostle, but he did something that all of God's people can do. And so friends, let me encourage you, if you are a believer today, find a way, for God's sake, to share your testimony, to let people hear that God didn't just change Paul's life, 2,000 years ago, but it is changing our lives here today because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Will you do that? Will you share your testimony? Today, you may sit here and you may say, I don't have a testimony. And the only way that can be true is that you don't know Christ. You don't know that your sins are forgiven. You don't know that God wants to bless you and give you an inheritance among his saints thing that's great is that you can respond to the gospel. You may have questions. We will do our best to answer those. But as we enter into a time of public invitation, this is a chance for you to do business with God. Whether it is the, the need to be a more fervent and faithful witness or whether it's the opportunity to say, I, I believe what the Bible says about Christ, and I want to understand better what it means to trust Him with my life, we'd be delighted to speak with you. And so I'm going to ask you to stand as we pray, and as our musicians gather to lead us in our invitation, ask for God to do His work in our own hearts. Lord, we thank You for this day, and we thank You for this Word. Lord, it's simple. Uh, 
telling the story of what you have done for us. And in this room, Lord, the stories are sweet to hear of your grace to person after person after person. To hear how you have transformed uh, generation after generation. Lord, make us faithful not just to uh, sit and soak in our testimony, but to share it with everyone you would bring across our pathway. Help us to know the gospel, to share the gospel. And this morning, if there are any here who have not trusted in Christ as their king, if they are willing today to say, oh, I need to be forgiven of my sins. I have lived life my way long enough and it doesn't work. Lord, give them the humility to submit their lives to you, knowing that what you, you, what you intend for them is ultimately for their good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.